You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the honor of sitting down with the one and only Julio Bermejo. Julio is a San Francisco native and is highly regarded as an expert on tequila. Julio is the beverage manager at a Mexican restaurant his parents established in 1965. In the mid-80s, he stopped pouring mixto tequila in favor of 100% agave ultra-premium tequila. And with that, he created the worldwide famous, delicious Tommy's Margarita that is now truly a global standard. Julio has a deep affection and respect for the beverage community and is a mentor to so many, including myself. Julio shared with us his journey that has literally, folks, taken his mission for teaching others about 100% agave tequilas around the world and back. So grab yourself your favorite El Tesoro cocktail and enjoy the show. Julio Bermejo, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are absolutely thrilled to have you back. We can't wait to learn more about you and your journey and your life story. So thank you for taking the time with us today. Well, Julie, Bridget, it's truly an honor and a privilege to be here on Served Up uh, with you guys. Yeah, it's going to be great. I think we should start off with the very beginning, Julio. Can you tell us where you're from, where you grew up, and a little bit about your background? Sure. So my name is Julio Bermejo. I'm the youngest son of a a Mexican family from the Yucatan. I was actually the only person in my family born in the United States, born here in San Francisco. Everyone else was born in a town called Oshkutskab, which are three Mayan cool words. And my parents are as well from that town in, in um, southwestern Yucatan. Uh, and so I grew up in San Francisco, uh, went to Catholic grammar school, went to Catholic high school, graduated from the University of California at Berkeley with a degree in political science. Um, and as the son of an immigrant family that were business owners, uh, I've been quote unquote working at the restaurant since I was probably six. I mean, not getting paid necessarily, but certainly peeling potatoes, grating cheese, deboning chickens, washing things um, ever since I can remember. And honestly, that experience led me to hate the restaurant and hate hospitality as I grew up. The grammar school I attended is right in front of the restaurant Uh, right across the street. And when my parents opened it, they certainly were not restaurant designers or had any experience running restaurants or having a restaurant. You know, their experience was literally in an ability to work as hard as you can to try to make it right. 
And so as a little boy, because the layout was our open kitchen was in front of the restaurant facing the street. So it was an open kitchen before open kitchens were trendy. I would have to duck under the windows in order to go run across the street to play. Because if my father saw me, he'd bang on the window and tell me to get my ass inside to go work. So I was constantly trying to sneak under the windows then to make it to the street corner so I, I could cross the street when the light was green and then go play. You know, so it was a little bit of a challenge, but I'm honestly grateful that my father did instill a decent work ethic in me. And, and with time, I certainly came to appreciate the restaurant business. But today I'm the beverage manager of our family's Mexican restaurant. Again, the name is kind of interesting because it certainly does not sound authentic in any way. But you have to remember as well, when my parents opened the restaurant on Gary Boulevard in 1965, even though San Francisco is considered a very progressive city, a very tolerant city, a very liberal city, well, there were demonstrations occurring all over San Francisco, right? Whether it's Vietnam War, whether it would have been Watergate, the riots on the campuses in the, in the late 60s, um, you know, the hippies, flower power, all of these things. And my parents, having very, very little formal education, had the good sense to put a name on their restaurant that people that lived in that neighborhood could easily pronounce, right? I mean, even today, you know, the sophisticated consumer can have some issues pronouncing the names of some of the products on their back bar, especially Latin ones or European ones, right? So, however, you fast forward 50 years, you probably wouldn't want to go to a place that serves authentic Mexican food and drink named Tommy's. You'd want to go to La Fuente, La Hacienda, El Corral, El Agave, whatever, right? But luckily, we have a decent reputation and very proud to have, have been at that same location now going on 57 years. Wow. That is just incredible. You know, I'm similar uh, background. My mother, you know, Korean um, immigrant, her and my aunt started a restaurant and neither of them have ever had a restaurant before. I mean, they both like to cook at home, but um, and we were working there. I was working there as a as a young kid, you know, through middle school, through high school. And that was my life. Um, so I can definitely relate. How did they find that opportunity to buy a restaurant? Like, can, do you know a little bit? Like, can you share a little bit about that story of like how they came upon the opportunity to, to buy a restaurant and, and how that journey was? Oh, absolutely. So just to give you a little background, my father uh, was part of the Bracero Agricultural Workers Program in the 50s. So this was a very successful agricultural workers program where during seasons of particular fruits and vegetables, the government would extend, the U.S. government would extend contracts to people to go work in the fields for a month or two months or whatever the season would be. And my father and his brother started doing that and like got a contract, I believe it was in Texas, and then would go back after the season back to their home. And started doing that with a little bit of regularity. And my father, when he came to California, had the opportunity to start picking produce in Southern California and eventually made his way up north doing the same thing. 
But up north in, in the city of today, it's Saratoga. Back then, Saratoga, which is part of Silicon Valley today, it was all a bunch of orchards for fruits, mainly apples. But he had a far, a distant, far cousin that he knew. He had one relative that he knew, again, not close, but that he knew and that he was able to meet. And this cousin of his would eventually get him a job or get my father a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant in San Francisco. So literally by luck and by chance, my father, you know, as an unskilled person and with having no language skills, but just a very strong work ethic started, if you want to call that his career there. And he worked his way up from dishwasher to, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was janitor or whatever, but eventually to a line cook. And he actually liked that. And he was pretty good at it. And mind you, my mother was not with them. My mother stayed in Mexico, like a lot of typical immigrant families where, and again, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic, but in the 50s, from what I know, you know, the man was certainly the breadwinner. And in our family, it was my father's responsibility because my mother brought the entire responsibility of raising the family. And so even though I wasn't born, my parents had three kids at the time that were living in Mexico and stayed with my mom while my father went away to try to make a living and send money back. And it's to this day, it's still tough for immigrants that come here and work, but it is so much easier in terms of, you know, there's email, there's FaceTime, there's Zoom. You know, my father spent 10 straight years in America without seeing his wife, right? Because that's the way it was. And the town where we're from was so small, it literally had one telephone office where you had to make arrangements. Every phone call you made, you'd go, hey, honey, or, or in my case, Elmi, my mother's name, I'm going to call you again in a week at this same time as much as I can. And people would wait an hour, two hours, waiting for a phone call in a public phone office in our town, right? And that's how they communicated. And, you know, I complain because my wife lives in Mexico. And even though because there's a pandemic, I haven't seen her since January, I see her every day on FaceTime and, and I at least see her. But it was tough. So anyway, my, my, my parents, uh, my mother would eventually come with her three kids, my, my three sisters, or actually four kids then. Uh, because one was born, I believe, when my father was here. And um, they all started working in service industry and saved a little bit of money to open a tiny coffee shop that they named Elmi's Cafe, which in today area of San Francisco would be the Tenderloin, a shitty neighborhood. But back then it wasn't that bad, but it was a very small coffee shop and they saved their money for several years. And they went and put a down payment on the building that we're at, at 5929 Gary Boulevard. But the interesting fact of the matter was the people that sold my parents the building didn't really do a lot of due diligence at the time, or they maybe did do a lot of due diligence because in theory, my parents couldn't afford the mortgage with one job, right? So they had to get other work to try to pay off the mortgage. 
And so they indeed did that. And all the time, my brothers and sisters, I mean, again, I'm not looking for pity or sorrow, but it's a typical immigrant life. You know, whatever events my brothers and sisters had, as I would have, my parents never went. I mean, I played baseball, basketball, participated in certain things. My parents were never there because they had to work. And I didn't feel any worse about it. I know my parents loved me, but they just had too many problems and too stressed out, right? So it's very fascinating today how you always kind of want what your kids couldn't have. So I look at my brothers and sisters and their children, and they're almost coddled to an extreme. You know, they attend every single activity they have, you know, which is great. But at the same time, I must admit that the tough love just gives you a, a, a little tougher shell. So not to, in my case, worry about things. And there was a secret blessing for us in that um, it sounds kind of elitist, but it isn't. We were all able to afford to go to Catholic private school, not because we had money, but not only was our grammar school right in front of where we lived, we lived above the restaurant, but because we had five kids, one of them went to school for free. So it wasn't, relatively speaking, so expensive, but the blessing was that in Catholic school, because you were obliged to use a uniform, it, was, it meant to me, as a growing person, that everyone was the same. Now, we certainly had what were called free dress days, where everybody could come in whatever you wanted to wear. I mean, something tasteful, obviously. And there you saw stratification. Like I couldn't afford name brand shoes. I couldn't afford Levi jeans while other people could. But 99% of the time, we all wore the same clothes. We were the same. And that really has a tremendous impact, you know, in my opinion, when no one can brag or belittle other people about maybe their misfortune or their lack of resource, right? So it was in school, you just compete maybe on the field or you compete in the classroom. You didn't have to compete with the materialism that today really plagues too many people. So I was so grateful to have that kind of upbringing. And so anyway, uh, but my parents had it, relatively speaking, rough. They worked all the time. You know, it, it was a restaurant opened all day. They had no help when they started. So you open, you buy the, you purchase all your supplies, you cook it, you serve it, you clean it, you fix it. I mean, yeah, not easy. And I remember my father, if I, you know, I always say one example of one of the greatest lifelong experiences for me that sounds very harsh to some people, but for me, again, it was a blessing. And I remember one time my parents are working the restaurant and my father is busy cooking something. And I'm at the restaurant and he asked me to bring him some tomatoes. Now I'm six or seven years old. I don't think I was three feet tall. And um, in the layout of our restaurant, again, the kitchen was in the front right by the door, uh, which was good. So my father could see who came in. And then we had a hostess stand and our refrigeration and dishwashing was in the very back of the restaurant. And that's where we kept our dry goods and our walk-in. So when my father asked me to go get him some tomatoes, you know, I go to where the vegetables are and I stand in the middle of the room and I do like a 360 degree circle and I don't see any tomatoes, right? I mean, I did not look at all in a thorough manner. I just did a scan 
I didn't see tomatoes. I went back to the kitchen and I told my father, I'm sorry, we have no tomatoes. And my father almost blew a gasket, right? I could see the vein in the center of his forehead kind of bulging. And he was livid. And he grabs me by one of my ears and essentially drags me the length of the restaurant to the back. I mean, he's incredibly busy, never yelling at me, but I mean, he drags me and he stands me up basically, or lifts me up in front of the tomatoes. And he told me, you have four eyes and you can't find the tomatoes. Didn't yell, but it was one of those voices where I wish he would have yelled at me because then I would have felt bad, but I wouldn't have felt as bad because of the tone that he told me right Mm -hmm. now. It was kind of devastating, but what it taught me was there's no easy answer and there's always a way. And if he told me that there were tomatoes, there were tomatoes. I mean, conceivably we could have run out, but he wasn't going to lie to me. And I just needed to do a better job of doing what I was asked. I didn't take it personally. You know, I mean, I did for that day, but then I saw the guy stressed out of his mind. I mean, help him out. So I don't know. So today I have a little bit of his temper, which I try to, to manage, but at the same time, I think there are so many life lessons in doing simple things that help you. So as much as I cherish my degree in political science from the University of California at Berkeley, what was important was the method and having a little bit of discipline, trying to see things through, trying to solve problems, right? Um, And one of my best life lessons, but it was tough to be a little kid and have to sneak around trying because you wanted to play. Or you don't want to get yelled at, but in the end, it worked out. So very grateful. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I did have the opportunity to meet your father um, multiple times at, at the restaurant. And what a man. You were very lucky. Oh, Bridget, the greatest thing my parents ever did also for us, again, just teach us respect for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of who you are, what you are, why you are. Mm-hmm. And, Again, my parents were, were unable to go to school. My father graduated from the fourth grade, as did my mother, yet they speak three languages. But the one thing that my father and mother loved and cherished to this day are meeting different people. And so like my father would just go, hey, why don't we save all our money and go to Europe? I don't know anybody, can't speak the language. You know, I can certainly read a guidebook. And, and they would meet the coolest people and make friends with them and write letters to people in broken English that no one understood, but that led to relationships that lasted for decades. And my father was a huge, huge baseball fan. And my mother, I don't know if she really was, she likes it. And she likes it today, but I'm sure she liked it because my dad liked baseball. One time they go to the Dominican Republic and they don't know anybody. Right. And so and my father wanted to go there because they play baseball. Mm-hmm. And father starts knocking on doors of strangers homes, asking if certain baseball players live there. Oh, my right? goodness. There's a famous town <laughs> called San Pedro de Macorais that mm-hmm. produces, I mean, everybody. And the people are so nice and genuine that they'll go, no. That guy lives down the block. And my dad would go down the block and he'd meet these people and they'd share something together. And I mean, I, that definitely rubbed off on me because I cherish the ability to, to meet anyone that because we all have a good story. 
and we're all interesting. And I never have also forgotten how people treat me when I go somewhere differently and don't know anyone or, you know, the ability to make friends and, and share commonalities through food and drink have been the greatest happiness or one of them in my life. So forever grateful for that too. No, you, you are definitely carrying on that tradition that your father started of hospitality, right? That hospitality soul and that spirit, that's what you exude. You have that light. And I think that's what draws all of us in to you, you know, not just as an educator, but as a friend, because you're right. I, I see it in you. You are always so welcoming and so warm and just always want the best for everyone that's around you. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's not something that we always see every day. So yeah, well, but I do want to note, like Julie said, when she worked at her family's restaurant, I hated it because I was embarrassed (laughs) to go to a table where there were adults and their kids were the kids that I went to school with because I was their servant, right? Cleaning their busing after them, cleaning for them, taking them their sodas or whatever. But what made me fall in love with hospitality and service was tequila. And that's what really led me to want to serve and do it with a passion. I mean, again, when I was young, and and even when I was in university, I mean, the political science department at the University of California at Berkeley at the time when I was there, they had the best postgraduate program in the world, right? And my undergrad program was really strong. And a lot of people expected me to be a professor or a lawyer or a whatever. And I didn't want to do that. And luckily, I fell in love with service. Right. Mm -hmm. And but it did take a dramatic event. And that was learning about tequila. So, well, let's talk about that, because, you know, I would love for our listeners to really understand your expertise around tequila and how that started for you, because Julio, you know, I'm just going to say it right now to our listeners. Julio Bermejo is the expert on the topic of tequila, not just in America, but you're known for this worldwide. You're highly highly respected by so many that I, you know, that want to learn more about the topic or, um, are, or even experts themselves come to learn from you. So do you want to maybe tell us where did that journey begin? The journey we can probably say started to drink alcohol, you know, in the Yucatan where we're from, because of the heat and the humidity, the standard things to drink are very light lager style Mexican beers. And in the Yucatan, it was Superior and uh, some Yucatecan beers called Carta Clara. And then because of the availability, it was rum and brandy that were mixed with Coca-Cola. And also remember, as illegal as it is and wrong as it is, if you had a little bit of money, anybody would sell anybody anything in Mexico, right? I mean, Because there was also, rightly or wrongly, you could lie and say, my father sent me to buy this bottle of brandy, and the storekeeper would believe you. And plus, they're trying to make a sale and whatever, right? But I saw that with my cousins and my friends. I mean, the kind of cool thing to do. And in fact, one of the coolest things to do where we were from was go to an abandoned church on a hillside in our town and then like drink under the moonlight. But we would get the worst hangovers of all time drinking beer, rum, and brandy. And I knew that as cool as it was, God, the after effects were just awful. I mean, just not worth it almost. So back in San Francisco, we had a restaurant that served alcohol that got a liquor license in the mid-70s. We didn't have the liquor license always. We eventually got the liquor license. And the bar that my father stocked 
was pretty much like the bar in any bar in San Francisco. No specialization, little bit of everything, full list of cordials. But I mean, things we obviously didn't even know what they were, but we stocked them because some people asked for them. But anyway, here, likewise, I would steal alcohol with friends and drink. We would have the same bad effects like, oh my God, beer sucks and this sucks. When eventually we took a bottle of Sousa 3Gs, which tequila, which at the time would have been a mixto. I, I didn't know mixto from anything. All I knew that it said tequila. And we proceeded to drink this and we felt okay the next day. I mean, it was like a revelation, like the Red Sea had been parted. Like, what is going on here? Why? I mean, we drank as much as we normally drink. I mean, for the punks that we were, but yet we felt okay. And again, we had no knowledge. We certainly couldn't ask anybody. I mean, people would have beat us back then, right? So again, we don't know, but we continue to do the behavior that seems to feel better till eventually we take a bottle of Eradura Reposado from the bar. And that was mind-blowingly delicious and a radical change that, again, we had no explanation. And it would take years to have information presented to me about tequila. Now, Mind you, during this time, you know, I literally, the, the first cocktail I was taught to make was called a special coffee. And my father taught me to go get a cup and saucer, put ice in the cup and chill the cup. And then he taught me how to make a Manhattan for the police officers that would come in for lunch. But he would just go, oh, three special coffees. Now, I wouldn't serve them. I would just make them. And then like my mom or somebody else would run them over to the table. But I go, wow, this special coffee doesn't have any coffee in it. And it makes the cup condense and, and it's cold. It's weird, but hey, you know, do, do what you're told. But it was hilarious. And now it just kind of makes me feel like the restaurant is kind of cool. We're doing all this stuff that we shouldn't be doing. But anyway, my love of tequila eventually would grow from having tried Eradura. And that would eventually lead somehow to David Grapshi coming to the restaurant. And because at the time he would work, he'd work for other distributors, but eventually got to work for the company that had Eridura, which was Sazerac. Mind you, I think we were getting Sazerac from Seagram's or, or we got it from a company called Jalco originally before David appeared. But David showed me, I mean, showed, I was 22, 23, whatever, very young. And what fascinated me was that there was an adult willing to give me time, right? And teach me something. And he, he showed me by example, by comparing, you know, Eridura to the hero mixto that we poured, that Eridura silver tasted so much better. And that it tasted so much better, even in the way that we made margaritas, which at that time were not Tommy's margaritas. I was blessed to have a mentor like David and many that actually showed me really good things. You know, you travel around the world and you go, uh, like in my case, I go to a lot of tequila accounts and businesses. And when I see the staff recommend the products they recommend, I can basically tell you who gave their seminars or who gave their classes, right? It's rare to go to a place that will truly recommend something other than the product that they make the most money on. And so I have a saying that, 
you can tell a lot about the bar that you're visiting by asking them what they choose to serve the guests that know nothing about the programs that they have. Because all of us have nice back bars and want to show off beautiful back bars, and we all want to say the right thing. It's the guest that orders the least expensive Tommy's Margarita that we hope we're still delivering top quality to, right? It's not the guy that doesn't know anything gets really shitty tequila and the connoisseur, we give them something good. Everybody has a base of good. And can it be better and different? Absolutely. But the base has always got to be serious, right? Because uh, in my case, we think that's our reputation. So anyway, I just happen to fall and meet seriously good people. And so in 1990, I have an epiphany when a bartender friend of mine working at a place called Palomino in Berkeley, California, and and he was a customer at our, I mean, again, I want to say the bar, but the bar wasn't a bar. We didn't know anything. The strongest resource we had was a really tattered old Mr. Boston's cocktail recipe book. And anyway, Brad was his name. As a customer at his restaurant, someone, some salesperson took him two products, took him Patron and El Tesoro. And he called me shortly after this. Uh, I don't remember the time frame in 1990, but um, they, those products were released in 1989. And he goes, Julio, you have to try these tequilas. They're really amazing. Okay. So I drove my little 1979 Mazda GLC fucking death trap over the Bay Bridge to his restaurant and bar. And he, he let me try these things. And my God, they were so different. My only familiarity was Eridura, which was delicious. This was completely different. And I fell in love again with the flavor profiles of these products. And so I then would eventually read the back label, find out who imported it, find out who they bought it from, started to buy it at the restaurant, and then started to learn more and more about this 100% agave business and things like this and started to build a minuscule collection that we eventually built up to 24 different 100% agave selections, which at the time was the largest selection in the city, but no one knew about the restaurant. Or we got no respect because the trendy, whether it was Mexican restaurants or back in that day, it was Southwest restaurants that were crushing it, right? Mark Miller, Coyote Cafe, John Sedler. And so like John Sedler had a super hot restaurant in San Francisco that I can't remember the name of. And they got all the tequila kind of press, even though my selection crushed them, but I was in the middle of nowhere out in the westernmost neighborhood in San Francisco. But anyway, we had now a dilemma starting to carry products with zero brand name recognition. And how do we get our guests to order things? Because even though I had changed our well from Hero to Eridura and our poll cost went from $5 a liter to $19 a liter, our drink price only went up 50 cents. So my parents were like, you're a fucking moron, right? This is, you have bad business sense and judgment. This is not good. And I go, what we're doing is delicious, right? You know, there was no doubt about that, but we literally had to teach our customers what we were doing, but I had to learn first because I didn't know. And so luckily I did. And 
when we do put Eridura silver in the well on a volume basis, we became Eridura's largest independent customer in the United States and the largest per seat place pouring agave, 100% agave in the United States as well. Because not that we were doing a lot of volume, but mind you, in the late 90s, 98% of all tequila consumers were still drinking mixto. And only 2% of the category drank 100% agave. So it was kind of a big challenge that for the first couple of years was not a good business decision. And if I would have worked at a corporate bar, I would have been fired the next day. But, you know, family is sometimes, not always, more forgiving. And it happened to work out for us. And it worked out in 1999 when we were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal And the Wall Street Journal said the restaurant was the epicenter of tequila in the United States. And then eventually CNN would call us the ground zero of tequila in the United States. And then things got really good. I mean, really, really good. And I also, because of the relationships I started on my own by visiting tequila distilleries, we started to become privy to real information and knowledge. And that, again, was groundbreaking because, I mean, again, even though I was a very young beverage buyer and young people, again, in any, any field, don't get a lot of respect. We luckily got some respect and luckily by good people. But still, it wasn't enough like today where if there was a brand new say, vodka on the market and a brand new bar buys 20 cases, they would probably fly me to the country of origin and or invite me to the party or whatever. And in Mexico, no one did any of that stuff because small producers tried the best they could to make the best products they could, right? And marketing was really anathema to everyone except the huge houses like Salsa, and Cuervo, and even the well tequila brands had no marketing. You bought the well product back then because it was cheap, not because it was part of a portfolio that you could be given things for or supported, you know, with funds, marketing funds or whatever, right? So, and then my guest didn't understand the wholesale cost of tequila. And we were trying to sell $5, 100% agave margaritas or $450 when like a vodka Coke was the same price, four bucks or 350. But my wholesale cost was three to four times more than like Smirnoff or a brand name bourbon or a brand name cheap scotch or a brand name vodka or a brand name gin, you know, and it took years. And it's still, I still contend that tequila, unfortunately, as expensive as it is, is still undervalued. And people who have tequila bars, our margins are lower because of the products that we have on the back bar that people commonly ask for in in cocktails, right? So, I mean, other places have the benefit of, oh, I can feature this brand name and because I'm featuring it, there's a cocktail price program. Well, there's no cocktail price program for the majority of high-end tequila. It is what it is. And, you know, we've managed around that. But, you know, the greatest thing for me was creating a culture that became loyal to all of these great brands. You know, I mean, and again, luckily, we're, we're doing okay, you know, without the pandemic. But, yeah, it's worked out and it's been really nice to garner some respect. And, and especially from the people making the products for the simple reason that 
you know, um, trust me, uh, we are trying to make as much money as we can and support the people that work for us and support ourselves and live in the most expensive city in America, seemingly. Since we've created a clientele that is loyal and comes when they can, you can't bullshit them, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe I can fool people, you know, or lie to people once or twice, but it will catch up to you, right? Or or if I'm the bar that I can feature because I got a great deal, XYZ mixto, and I'm pouring it in the well. And then in a month when the guest comes in and goes, hey, the margarita tastes totally different. Well, I changed out the well because the next well was 50 cents cheaper, or they promised me this, or they promised me that. And then again, the inconsistency in the flavor profile of the product. I think our guests are sophisticated enough to know and knowledgeable enough to know when things taste right. And that's not saying that no one can change anything because we did change our well. I put Eridura in our well for more than 20 years and we didn't change the well because of increases in price or because someone offered me something cheaper and better or better. We changed when Brown Foreman changed the product. And so then we went to another family owned and operated Valley style product called Arete. And we put that in our well for almost 11 years. And again, I didn't change because Arete went up in price. I changed because there were differences in the bottle that were not to my particular liking. I mean, but we still sell Eridura and we still sell Arete. Mm-hmm. And then we found another house tequila. But by this time, or actually by the Arete time, fortunately, a lot of the industry had caught up and serious bars were now everyone at 100% agave blanco in their well. And I thought that was a tremendous victory for the category and a tremendous, in many re- regards, for San Francisco and for London, that it was 100% agave because I think I influenced London a lot and in San Francisco as well. But when everybody catches up to us, I decided to make our house tequila 100% agave, family-owned and operated, reposado, made naturally. So again, bumping up the ante a little bit. And today, or rather, when, when the Mexican state government of Jalisco and the National Chamber named me Ambassador of Tequila to North America, I took it upon myself, even though it's unpaid and all it is is a title, and I get some cool kind of, some cool things, but I mean, no money at all. But I took it upon myself to try to represent as much of the industry as I can. And so if you are distillery owned and operated, and you export to the state of California, and I can buy it, So I try to know every single product that's out there, but of course I don't. But if I can get it, we will gladly stock you. But we will, of course, let the market determine who buys what. So I carry a lot of things that I wouldn't pay a penny for, but I've paid for them and they're on my shelf. And and if anyone goes, do you have anything representative of XYZ distillery? I go, absolutely this. And you can buy it if you want or not, right? So I'm trying to be true to that as well. But the respect from the owners is really vital to me personally, because we try to look at business as not just about making money, right? It's got to be win, win, win. And it doesn't matter if someone wins a little more. I think people can live with that. But I don't want to be going into relationships and partnerships where someone takes too much advantage of another party. 
for example, I'm sorry for the tangent, and I want to apologize in advance for being politically incorrect, possibly. But like, I have one issue with mezcal. I mean, I love mezcal. I think it's the most ceremonial distillate in the world, and it is so incredible. But my problem with mezcal happens to do with the mezcals that are made from wild indigenous species of agave. And so the great thing about those things is that many of them are incredibly delicious. Mm -hmm. And they've been being enjoyed by minute popularities in certain parts of villages of Mexican states ceremoniously. And so they've been sustainably being harvested. But the problem, since they're so delicious, that when you expose deliciousness to more people, well, more people want them. And when more people want something, well, as a business person, one does his or her best to satisfy that demand. In the case of, say, my favorite wild indigenous mezcal species is tepestate, which takes maybe 15 to 20 years to mature. And everyone will tell you, oh, yeah, you know, the village that we get our mezcal from this year, they harvested a hundred. I mean, I'm throwing out hypotheticals, a hundred tepestates and we replanted 500. Right. And I'm like, oh, man, that sounds cool. But we still have no knowledge if these cultivatable hijuelos will blossom and mature because no one's done it yet. And we haven't waited long enough to make sure. So my whole point is, before we eradicate every single wild species of agave that's used to make mezcal, why don't we make sure we can regrow them, right? Because not all plants are cultivatable. My wife has a wonderful ranch where There's a wild type of squash that grows that she loves to eat. And when it comes in season, she harvests it and enjoys it. And she's taken the seeds and she's taken the cuttings. Now, granted, she's not an agricultural engineer, but she's done the basic things to try to plant it and it won't grow. So, I mean, again, maybe we're idiots, but before we eradicate some agave species, let's hold off. Now, on the other end of the equation, I just told people who are mezcal collectors, want to make a lot of money? I'd buy every single wild species of agave mezcal that's distillery owned and operated that I could afford. I won't do that because it's just like cutting down the old growth forest of California, or it's like killing the black rhinos or killing elephants. I mean, let's just wait that they can all grow back before we extinguish them, right? But anyway, I don't know why I got off on that tangent. Sorry. Back to tequila, though tequila is losing a little bit of respect because it's selling out and being too commercialized. There are plenty enough naturally made tequilas that still excite me in the category. And even though tequilas become more globalized, and again, it's become almost a staple in the United States as this year was the first year ever that sales of tequila overtook sales of rum and overtook sales of bourbon. I mean, that fact is unbelievable, as we must remind ourselves that tequila's denomination of origin, and you can make bourbon anywhere in North America, follow the rules, or you can make rum anywhere. The fact that the price point of tequila is so high and people still want to drink it is kind of refreshing. So kudos to them. But uh, selling good products has helped us have respect from the producers who I just really think validates my program when 
an owner comes to San Francisco and at least stops 10 minutes at Tommy's to say hello to my guests and say hello to us. You know, I, I still want that relationship. I mean, I certainly want every tequila producer to be the most successful he or she can be, but I hope they don't lose sight of the fact that they're the last denomination of origin spirit category where the majority of the ownership continues to lie in the hands of the people of origin. Now, the day that Casa Cuervo, owned by the Beckman family, a Mexican family in Jalisco, the day they sell, well, that will change the equation. But up until this point, the majority of of the volume of tequila and certainly the number of distilleries still belong to the people of origin. And that's, to me, very special, right? Because as wonderful as the Macallan is and as prestigious and expensive, if I am a collector of Macallan, like my dear friend Alok in Singapore, who has millions of dollars of Macallan, I can't make a phone call to, to the Highlands in Scotland and go, hey, man, I love Macallan. And I would like to personally thank Mr. Macallan for doing an amazing job or someone in his family, you know, a descendant for making incredible scotch because there is no Mr. Macallan or Bridget, you know, something closely to both of our hearts. We're both dear friends of one of our favorite people in the world, Freddie No, right? And if I call Fred and go, brother, how you doing? Hey, Freddie, can I ask a huge favor? I'm going to be in Kentucky next week. You know, can I get a tour of, of Beam? Well, Fred's answer would be, well, Julio, I'm sure it won't be a problem, but let me check with corporate or let me check with the brand manager. Let me check with this person or that person or that person where I can make a call to almost any tequila distillery with the owner and go, hey, can I visit? And it's a yes or no. There's still owners there making the decisions. And fortunately, most of them still want to deal with a bartender or with an account, not all day long, but certainly that, that relationship can still exist. And it's so special to say, I got a drink from Dick Bradsell, who's no longer with us and may rest in peace. But the, those connections or having Don Julio be behind the bar three times in my lifetime, right? I mean, pioneers in my field that really give our program credibility, right? So I think the tequila category is so special for that regard. And and I hope people take the opportunity if they enjoy tequila and enjoy whatever their favorite brand is to seek out, hey, who's the owner? Who's the person behind it? And, you know, learn about their passion for making what they do. It's incredible. I mean, I think Julio, your influence on the tequila category and really bringing to light all these small distillers and very special, you know, product that they've been producing has, has really contributed to the growth of the category. I mean, I don't know if you would take claim to that, but, you know, I think all the work that you've done, you know, really bringing this fresh margarita to the market, premiumizing tequila has played a big role in in where tequila is today, right? 40 years later, 50 years, or, you know, however long you had really built that passion. Um, so what are some tequila bars within your area and, and tequila selections that you've been impressed with, you know, that have kind of taken your torch on and, and kind of trying to do the same thing and really feature all these, um, the special product throughout the category. 
Well, that's a wonderful question because, you know, the sincerest form of flattery in life is when people try to emulate or copy what you do. 100%. And what was cool, um, I was involved in a high profile restaurant uh, that I won't mention the name, but that that was my beverage program um, with Jacques Bezadenhout. And we built something really special there. And as soon as we launched that, I mean, in 2006 or five, I believe, then, man, Tequila Bar started opening up like flies in San Francisco. And it was great, right? It was really cool. And to this day, um, there are a lot of great places like Echo, like Techo, like um, Tacolicious. My God, um, I'm drawing a brain freeze, but a bunch of cool places in San Francisco who enjoy not just tequila, but other agave spirits. And I see younger people taking that torch on. And it just, yeah, it definitely makes me proud. And it makes me, on Sunday, I had these three really young people come to the restaurant. And, you know, with the pandemic, our business is slow, right? And But anyway, so I saw them. I don't recognize them. And I'm running around doing my errands. And my bartender, Grady, tells me, those three guys over there, or the three people at the fourth booth, they had a question. They wanted to know if you were here. And I go, okay. So I was kind of doing inventory. And I go over there and I, I introduce myself and I welcome them and ask them who they were. And I go, hey, what do you guys do? And they go, oh, um, well, I bartend at a place in Tahoe. And the other two uh, were servers at the same bar and restaurant. And they go, hey, that's great. What's the bar and restaurant? And they go, well, it's Hell's Kitchen in uh, Lake Tahoe. And it's a Gordon Ramsay restaurant. I go, oh, yeah, quite familiar. I mean, I haven't been to that Hell's Kitchen. I've been to some of his restaurants. And uh, how can I help you? Oh, well, we wanted to come here. You know, we have a Tommy's margarita on our menu and we just wanted to just meet you and and to say hello. And I go, that's great. Well, do you guys like tequila? Do you like the cocktail? Oh, yeah, we love it. So, I mean, again, I wasn't busy. I spent about 45 minutes with them. We just gave them some samples. And, and, you know, one of the simplest things that I do that has really helped us demonstrate our program is make anyone a margarita of the same category of tequila and just have them compare it side by side. So, you know, our house tequila is a Valley style product. It's called Luna Azul Reposado. And so I made them, well, actually I didn't make it. Grady made it. We made them a Highland Reposado tequila and, you know, same proportion, same ingredients. And it was completely different, obviously. And they expressed a preference. And it wasn't that the margarita was better or worse, but the fact that they could express the preference told me that we're doing our job in not masking the flavor of the tequila. And they were so gracious and nice and willing to ask good questions and seemed interested. And that really drives me. You know, I a lot of people like go to a lot of places and they have a checklist like, oh my God, they told me Bridget Albert makes the greatest Manhattans, you know, in Chicago. So I'm going to go find her. I got my Manhattan. I get to check it off. You know, I got to go to Las Vegas and Tony Abuganam is the creator of the cable car. I want to get a cable car from Tony. Then I'm going to go to whatever. This guy makes the best sushi. So I checked it off my list. Tommy's makes great margaritas. I went to Tommy's. I hope people aren't living their life like that because when someone comes to us, an independent venue, at least, and shows genuine interest, usually nine times out of 10, someone's going to take the time, even if they're very busy, to go and give some sort of acknowledgement or answer questions or time. 
with that guest. That's really how you build relationships, right? I mean, we like to follow an adage by Patricia Fripp, who is this incredible English, uh, from England, uh, lady who's a motivational speaker. And her deal is successful businesses don't just close a sale, they open a relationship, right? So, you know, and, and the short-sightedness of someone who works at a bar and meets the guest who is a tourist and will only go there one time, so maybe you don't need to give a shit, is incredibly shortcoming and short-falling because everyone who walks into your venue, whether they have a good experience or bad experience, will tell people. And hopefully you want them to have a good experience, right? And, and again, you spend 30 seconds with someone and they're greatly appreciative. You know, so, so Bridget and Julie, I've embarrassingly, I got in a fight with a young customer, a young female customer. Um, I was taking orders one day and I'm now, I mean, table orders and I'm a grumpy old man now. I mean, I'm <laughs> trying to be a nice guy and trying to have patience. And oh, no. So I had this uh, three top and it's two young ladies and a gentleman and they've never been to Tommy's and they were kind enough to say, oh, hey, we've never been here. What do you recommend? And it's like, it was that one day out of the week where it was kind of like the wrong question to ask me right at that time of the week and that time of the day. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I looked at her, you know, and I go, you know what I recommend? I recommend you get laid as often <gasps> as you can. I recommend you eat a lot of leafy green vegetables. And if you smoke cigarette, I recommend you quit smoking cigarettes. But how can I recommend anything on our menu to eat or drink if I have no idea who you are or what you eat or what you drink? Oh, Help man. me out here. Oh, yeah. I was like with that tone. <laughs> oh, my God. Furious, and they left. But, oh, I mean, come on, help out your server. You hey, know? you know what? I'm so glad you said that because my husband, we go to restaurants and the server, he's never even met them before. And he's picky, right? Like he doesn't eat meat. He likes fresh stuff. He's got he's not like your average consumer. And he'll be like, well, what do you recommend? What do you like? And I'm like, why don't you ask me? I know what you like. Don't ask her. Don't ask him. They don't know what you like. And then he orders it and then he hates it. So I feel you, Julio. Oh, man. You. you know, we just want foundation. You know, that's all you want. That's all yep. you want. Well, Julio, we're we're so happy that you came on Served Up today. We do want to just wish you all the very best. You shared so much today. Oh, my gosh. We learned so much about your background with your beautiful family with tequila and, you know, just your love for our industry. And as somebody who's been in the industry for a long time and Julie as well, we just want to thank you for loving the industry as hard as you do and for oh. doing all the wonderful things that you do for all of us with your education, with your kind spirit. You're one of a kind. Oh, and Bridget, thank, thank you. And you. Julie, thank you. I mean, uh, we're, I give all the credit to my parents and, and their example they set. And again, uh, if you have an interest in tequila or Mexico or Mexican food or want to hang out with some nice people, I think we can cover those bases for sure. <laughs> Thank you. And as 100%. always, you know, Julie and I, we just want to wish you just some really great health, especially during this time and just a lot of peace. Let's all keep each other safe. You know, uh, you know, we saw the passing of an industry legend a couple of days ago, right? Yes, Douglas we did. Hukra. 
Yeah. Um, we should all look after each other. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes as a good friend, it's difficult to ask questions, but if you care about somebody and you notice something different, be intrusive. And if they say it's none of your business, well then respect it. But maybe sometimes people want to reach out and they don't know how to do it. And sometimes listening is the most powerful tool that we can offer our friends. So especially in these times, these times are tough, They're tough, tough, tough. tough. So thank you guys. Love you to death. Continued success on your incredible served up podcast. I love Tim McDonald's uh, comment. I don't know if you guys saw (laughs) it. I did see it. That was, you know, you guys keep crushing it. So Uh, awesome. Thank you. And I, I made a Tommy's margarita with El Tesoro. I I just had the, the plata and from your when you told me exactly how to make it, I wrote it down and I went and made it and I've been drinking it like almost every night. It's amazing. Now, now, Julie, you do realize, though, that the Tommy's Margarita is hated by a lot of the industry, right? Do you know that? I don't know that. I don't well, know that. So Travis Tober put up this little post. And again, I'm not on Instagram because I don't know how to use it. So it's on Facebook. And I've been told nobody looks at Facebook, but a lot of people seem to have seen this. Um, and he said, oh, there's only like three cocktails you need to make you know, a, a martini, a Negroni and a margarita. And then one guy in Texas said, yeah, just make sure it's none of that Tommy's margarita crap. Right. And I go, man, I didn't know there were haters. But remember, every company that makes a triple sec, an alcoholic triple sec, they hate me. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you took the triple sec out of the drink. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I made a smoother cocktail more reminiscent of the tequila. If I can just tell you one more story, that's <laughs> a crack up. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so when I was very young and, and just doing my thing, I went to a, um, a miniature trade show for one of the distributors in, in, it wasn't even in downtown San Francisco. It was at a place called the Regency Theater on Van Ness uh, Avenue. And so I'm making the rounds, you know, like any young beverage manager, looking at all the cool new products and sampling and, you know, getting all the free tchotchkes you can. And so I have my little, my name tag and it says Julio. So I'm walking around and I happen to pass by a very prestigious French orange liqueur company. And the guy stops me and he goes, Hey, and he scans my badge and he goes, Julio, do you guys make margaritas over there? And I go, yes, yes, we do. And, and he said, well, you should be using our product. And I go, well, what product is that? And he proudly shows me his product and he gives me his sales pitch. And his closing argument on his sales pitch was, look, if you use our product, the flavors of our product are so good that you can use the cheapest tequila in your margarita. Oh, and no. And your margarita is going to taste of our product. And then so I go, I listen and I, and I go, oh, that's great. But I want our margaritas to taste of the tequila that the guest orders. And the guy was so confused, like his eyes opened up like like deer eyes and headlights. Like, what do you mean? Like, like as if good tequila did never exist. Like what? There's tequila that's good to drink. And it was mind blowing to him that someone actually cared about tequila in that cocktail. But yeah. I thought it was pretty hilarious. How much times have changed, right? Oh, and it's, absolutely. it's incredible, but you know, and, and I know we do need to go, but I've noticed. So now I'm ordering a Tommy's margarita when I go out Thank and you. one of the guys was like, oh yeah, you know, I know exactly what that is. He made me one. And on the bill, it said skinny margarita. 
So do yeah. you see that is like now that it, Tommy's margarita is turned into skinny margarita because it doesn't yeah, have all the extra stuff. But we I'm predated sorry. that by more than 20 years. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you totally did. That's... Yeah. So, but, okay, but so yeah, you're the original, the original skinny margarita. What's book. interesting too, Julie, is in America, a lot of bartenders know the recipe and a lot of places put it on the menu, serious places. Yep. But many won't. But in Europe, everybody will. It's kind of just weird that way or in Asia or in Africa or whatever. Well, as um, a, as a little project, I'm going to, we have a database. Um, we collect menus, you know, at Southern Glazer so we can look up the name. I'm going to do a search across uh, menus that actually say Tommy's Margarita I would across love the country. That. Okay. And to, I'll share it with you. That'd be great. I I've been trying see. to get I, pictures just to have a scrapbook or something. But hey, remind all our guests. If you have any interest in tequila as much as you can try to make sure it's family owned and operated and now it's no longer just enough that it's a hundred percent agave try to ask the server or the bartender if it's made by cooking agave naturally mm. yep. so i mean good tips good tips to find a a great tequila love you guys have an incredible week thank, thank you, you. Serving it up. and thank we hope you, to Julia. see you in vegas at the tag awards Co- cross fingers, everything goes good thank yeah, you yeah let's so keep crossing much. our fingers thank you yep. love you bye-bye thank you. love you bye. <laughs> bye thanks for listening served up is brought to you by southern glazers wine and spirits produced by zunu.online music by we kill the lion can be found on spotify Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!